What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Steve Lukather, guitarist extraordinaire, songwriter, singer, member of Toto. Luke, you stop dying your hair. What's that about? You know, I turned 65 in October, and I'm at my son's house at his studio. And when and I told him a long time ago when he was young and I was still younger, I said, hey, man, if I start looking like the old guy with the jet black hair, you got to tell me. And he said, yeah. And that was a long time ago. And on my 65th birthday, I was letting the beard go a little bit. And he goes, Pop, it's time. He goes, <laughs> and he goes, Jimmy Page, Brian May, your friends. You know, it's like, you know, I said, you know what? I had no idea what color it was going to be because I've been dying it since I was 32 years old, 31 years old. So I, I didn't know what color was underneath. I'm kind of glad it's white because it gives it a little bit more of a thing. And, you know, there, and also people were giving me shit. They say, hey, are you wearing a wig or something like that? I'm going, no, dude, why would I wear a wig that looks like this? And when it all went, I still got the hair. So I said, well, I'm just going to be an old, embrace my old age. You know, I'm going to be 66 in October. So I'm not trying to fool anybody. It was just a knee jerk thing I've been doing for 30 years. And I kept doing it. And then it just became a pain in the ass. So fuck that. It looks very dignified. This is audio only, but you can go online. There are pictures of uh, am, Luke man. Look, many places. You know, speaking of your son, there's a picture. I think the first time I saw you without dyed hair was the picture at your son's wedding. Well, I was letting it go. I it grads, I started washing it out because it, you know, and and eventually it just all came out, and this is what was underneath it. So you're at your son Trevor's house studio. Yeah. So he's the tech wizard. You're not that good with tech. I'm, I'm lucky to get my underwear off and 
before I go in the shower. That's how low tech I am. Okay, Luke, you have a new solo album, uh, Bridges. How did this come about? Well, pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, I did a record before the pandemic, like a month before the lockdown. That was two years ago or whatever it was. And I was all live in the studio, very um, self-indulgent, if you will. I wanted to do something where I didn't overdub anything but the voice. And that's what we did. Didn't fix anything. So I did that. Now, edited two years later, the sun was going to come back on. Because for a while there, we didn't know if it was ever going to come back. Right. It was a very terrible time for me. I mean, I went into a manic depression hole that my doctor was scared about. And I was taking medications for it. And that whoa, got all whoa, whoa, squirrely. Whoa, whoa, a little bit slower. Because you're a very upbeat guy, although, you know, we've talked about your down moods and medication before, but tell me about this descent and how bad you were. Well, I mean, you live through it yourself. I mean, we hit a brick wall going a thousand miles an hour. I had touring plans. I had all kinds of a year planned out in advance because these things take a while to get together, as you well know. And all of a sudden, boom, done. No idea when or if it's ever going to come back are we all going to die from this thing you know everybody's sitting in their house with a mask on scared to death to touch anybody or anything and i went into a black hole after first couple months it's like ah they great have being home isn't it nice to have some time off and then it started to suck day by day there was nothing to look forward to no reason to get out of bed i descended into my own private hell and um it just lost its way and i had a massive breakdown i did i ended up in a hospital and ended up in a crazy house it was a very scary time for me i didn't know what to do with myself bob i really didn't i'm so i've been, I've been non-stop since i was a kid you know I, I did my first union sessions in 1976 when i was 18 years old at united western three where they cut pet sounds and that's when i was going wow this is really starting to happen, you know, and uh, I never stopped. I've been busy ever since, uh, unless I wanted to take a few weeks off to vacation, which was not often. So when it all just stopped, I'm like, what do I do with myself? I don't know what to do, you know, and it was a very scary time for me. And once I pulled out of that dive and got myself together and got with a great doctor and, and cleaned all that rubbish out that i was taking for this depression which was not good for me at all and of course you know if one makes you feel better what happens if you take five you know what i mean you know it got to right. that you know what i mean and i was ashamed to say it but i lost control of my life and it was a terrible time for me and when i came out of it and woke up i wanted to make some music i knew we were going to get back on the road i was once i started back in and we could do something again plan okay we can come we can tour again got all that together and we had two months off and i go i want to do something so i called up my old pal david page and joseph williams my toto partners and childhood friends i said let's make a record like old school let's make a shamelessly 80s who gives a fuck record like i'm not trying oh i'm not going to change the world i'm not going to sell eight million copies like we used to but I want to scratch the itch, you know? I want to make a fun record with the with all of us guys and invite back Simon Phillips, who hadn't played with us in a long time, who was our drummer, legendary drummer, and Shannon Forrest, who played with us last time. 
in the last incarnation. And I just, Lee Sklar came in, Jurgen Carlson from Government Mule. My son produced and co-wrote a track. I just did, we did it in three weeks from soup to nuts. And then I sat on it for a year because we went on the road and then we mixed it and it's coming out in, in June 16th. Okay. One other name you didn't mention, which I found interesting. Randy Goodrum is involved. How did that come together? Oh, Randy's one of my favorite songwriting partners. We started writing songs in the mid 80s and we had our first hit with a song called I'll Be Over You, which has lasted some time. Matter of fact, it, uh, it just went gold after all these years. So well, at this point, that's my favorite Toto song. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You know, uh, uh, Toto 4 is vastly underrated. That was the first album with Joseph Williams. Oh, and I no, must no, be honest. No, 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 it wasn't. Toto 4 was the album that we, was the last album we did with Bobby Kimball, singer. Oh, that's not what I'm, it was called Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit was the record that uh, Joseph uh, right. joined up. But Joseph and I have been friends since we were teenagers. Okay, well, Joseph is the son of the composer John Williams. Yes. How'd you meet Joseph? Through his brother, Mark, who's a drummer, and myself and a famous guitar player, Michael Landau, and I have been friends since we were 12. And a bass player is playing with Toto now, John Pierce. We had a high school, one of our many high school bands together. And that's how I met Joe, his little brother. And Joe could sing really great. He was really funny. And we sort of lost touch for a minute. and then. When we were looking for another singer, he came in and auditioned, and he had great songs to go along with it. Plus, I knew him as it says, like, this guy's great. Perfect. And we all thought, you know, everybody else fell in love with him, and then uh, we started making some records together. Okay, so you got this record. How'd you write the songs? You mean on my new record? Yeah. Um, well, meet, called up Paige, said, meet you at Joe's at noon. Let's see what we got. Every day we come in with nothing, and every day we would leave with a fairly well-constructed track with an idea for what lyrics and melodies that we had. And we, and then we'd say, Hmm, well, I want to get this done quick. Who are we going to call? So I called either Stan Lynch, who's a dear friend who used to be the drummer in the heartbreakers, but he's also a great lyricist producer did the Eagles Henley and all that stuff. And he writes incredible words and he knows he has my demented sense of humor as well. Um, and then it, Randy Goodrum was the other guy who, was my go-to when it comes to writing ballads and stuff like that. We had, we have something. I write these piano songs, and I have it all together except the words. I can then we talk about how I'm feeling, what I want to write about, and he comes back with this poetic stuff that I would have never been able to come up with on my own. Because you know I can write words. I'm also better at editing what somebody else gives me. I need a help getting started with it. Then I'm I, I'm a closer. I like to finish stuff, but. I'm not afraid to ask for help from guys that really are good at their gig, you know, and Randy's one of the best. Okay. Let's go back. You show up, you got nothing, a little bit slower. How do you end up with something? Somebody starts playing some, either I have a little bit of, I start dicking around with a riff and Pates jumps in on the keyboards. We set up a little drum groove, you know, on a machine with the intent of having real musicians play on it. But, you know, the other thing is, like, we don't do demos. Everything's a master. No such thing as demos. Because a lot of times, your original live vibe and, and the creativity comes without thought. You know what I mean? It just comes. You start thinking about it too much. Oh, I'm going to have to redo that, and then it's never as good. Maybe sonically might be better, but we're, since we're recording on Pro Tools or Logic, we were working in Logic, um, it just sounds great, so there's no reason to redo it. So we sort of like made this, as opposed to the last time where everybody was in the room at the same time, 
everything live. This time we just we the three of us, Joseph, myself, and David, were working, and we'd start overdubbing and start coming up with stuff. And the form would take place. We'd have a song done in less than an hour every day, with the exception of the, the lyrics. But we start overdubbing, and you know, I said, let's just shamelessly overproduce this like we used to. <laughs> okay. So the drum machine is only in your headphones and you replace it with real drums later? No, no. We weren't wearing headphones. We were playing through the speakers and stuff like that. And uh, Well, how do you so, replace the drum machine then in the final product? Well, you take it, get a real, hire a real drummer, and uh, most of the song is completely done, except for the bass and the, the real bass and drums. I like to put that on last. And so he knew exactly what he was playing. So you have a click track with it. He can, so he doesn't listen to the drum track. You know, we play the rough form once and we have a chart written out. So everybody knows where we are. So we get the stuff done real fast. Simon Phillips can read, you know, first take stuff, you know, and he, he knows what to play. I didn't have to tell him. He heard it. He goes, I know what to play. So the, no, no more than one or two takes on anything. The other stuff I sent to Shannon Forrest via, uh, the internet and he was living in his studio in nashville and he's he is a unbelievably great studio he's a great engineer great player and he'd send me back the stuff and i go that's great or sometimes i i was in the room with simon so trevor and i went out my son trevor who worked on the record co-produced his track um or he produced his track he didn't co-produce we just i want to let my son go with it but that's we can talk about that later but I just, I try, know who to call. It's like, you know who to call who's going to do the job. And I wanted to work with my old friends too. You know, people think, well, well Simon's not in the bad any- band anymore, so I must hate him. And that's not true. These things, everybody moves on. It was his choice to move on. And we're all still friends, you know? Okay, just technically, because I'm interested. If you're in the room and everything's through speakers, you hear the drum machine, but everything is recorded separately in Logic, so you can pull the drums, uh, drum machine yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I, I had my amps in another room, out, you know, so that you couldn't hear them while we're in the room. So it was coming through the speakers like you would if it, listening to any recording. Uh, and David was going direct, as was Joe. So there was no leakage or anything like that. So we were able to use everything. Okay. And how do you decide what to use on the final record? Oh, throughout the process. I mean, as we're adding vocals, it's, I mean, Joseph Williams produced the record because, A, he's a great producer, especially with the vocals, getting that out of me. And, and, and the studio was in his house. We did everything at his house except for the drums, which we farmed out. And, uh, and then I had my, my uh, engineer Ken Freeman mixed the whole thing. We just gave it to him and said, "Here, make this. This is it's all here. Fresh ears, make this sound great." And then we come in and I go, "Yes, no, no. Do this, do this." I mean, I know how to tech talk. I just don't sit behind and press the buttons myself. You know what I mean? I know how to speak engineer. Okay, so you make a record today. The nature of the marketplace is no matter how great that record is, going to have a fraction of the audience of what it had in the 70s and 80s. Does that impact your desire? How does that affect your attitude towards a project? It doesn't affect it at all. I try as hard as I ever did to try to make it. I mean, we listen, it, nothing's going to sell 8 million records anymore. I mean, particularly older guys. Now, I just did this because I need to scratch the creative itch. I have to do something new, and it's a niche audience. We play, we have a big enough audience that will buy this 
to facilitate me doing more if I ever decide to do another record. I don't know. I'm just kind of dealing with this one at this point. Um, and I love the tour. I love the, and that's where we make all of our money. But that, you know, I'm away from home. You know, that's what that is. I just finished three months without coming home, just like last week. But making music is something I, I need to do. It's not something I do for the cash, per se. We know that there's no real money in the recording business, new music anymore. There's money in the old music. Our Spotify numbers are scary good. And, uh, you know, billions of uh, of streams. And, uh, and I made a great deal when I took over management of the band eight years ago. I made a great deal with Sony because they didn't know what they had and Spotify was brand new. So I got it the best percentage that you could get. I'm not going to say what it is, but it's 30% more than we were getting on a regular record plus. So I love Spotify. Everybody hates Spotify. I love Spotify. The gift that keeps on giving, baby. Okay. Now, for a long time, you and Sony were not on the same page. Mm, well, no. They hated us. Donnie Einer refused to release our records, and Matola didn't do anything about it. You know, and um, yet our they wouldn't let us out of the deal because we sold too many records around the world. So everything else did really well around the world, but you know the U.S. We they'd release three hundred records in Pocatello and say that they released the record to fulfill the contract with a big middle finger towards us, which is really stupid. But you also said you prior to this renegotiation, you didn't think you were properly accounted to on royalties. Yeah, well, you, turns out I was right. You know the, the you know what an audit is. We do it yeah, every two, we do it we, we we do it every two years, and they always there's always found money and in any other corporation, if you default more than two times, you're out of your record you're out of your deal, not in the record business in perpetuity that's a word that's a word in perpetuity for life, and then when I die, my kids will chase after it and you know some acts a little bit before the vintage of Toto had rights of reversion on the album. You didn't have that with Toto. We fought for it, and that's how I got the Spotify deal. They, would, they were never going to give any artist their rights to their record back because catalog is what keeps the building lights on. You know, They don't develop new talent for long careers anymore. And all those old guys that everybody makes fun of, all those old guys, what do they know? we're still selling records, they're still selling tickets. So we may not be relevant to today's hipster youngsters, but it turns out there are young people that got into our music due to this crazy Africa shit, you know? It's like, that was the funniest thing that ever happened to me, but it was also the best. I'll take it. It's a gift. Thank you, Lord. You know? Puts okay, the Weez, in the tell us the story of how you found out. Weezer was constantly being no, asked to no, do a no, cover no, of no. Africa. No, no, no. You got this backwards. They were the last ones on board. They, were, they, they, they batted cleanup basically this whole thing started from uh show stranger things right they used the song in there and this and it just all of a sudden came out and it became this worldwide thing man and we're like 40 years after it was the number one record in the united states by the way i never thought this song was ever going to see like any radio play when we put it on the album it was the last thing we cut on total four and Paige had this great groove and all this. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And the lyrics were never done. It was just the melodies. And then we made the whole record. 
And then Dave and Jeff, you know, Paige was going to Africa. I'm feeling this vibe. We're going, okay, well, what are the words going to be? And the melody was killer. The groove. Jeff Picaro was the muse behind all of that. You know, he put, he put together, we started doing all these loops without the late, great Al Schmidt. God bless him, our engineer at the time. And we did it old school. Loops, real loops, like tape loops where you're holding with this right. pencil and stuff, you know. And we just wanted to experiment. You know, we were young guys, you know, didn't, you know, lived in the studio, loved it. You know what I mean? And we spent like six months making that record, if not more. Because we, it was like, if you don't have a hit record, you're going to get dropped from the label. <laughs> so it was our fourth record. We said, well, we better bring it. So at that point, we were like, okay, so Dave had this cool vibe. And at the end, they brought the lyrics in. And I was laughing at the lyrics. I'm going, hey. <laughs> I'm going, Dave, we're from North Hollywood. You know, what is this, you know? What are you talking about? It was just a fantasy song that Dave used to, he's, uh, you know, him and Jeff, they were into, you know, history and they would, all stuff like that. And they just started grabbing, went for it. We, you know, all these ridiculous words, Serengeti. And like, of course it doesn't make any sense. I mean, everything, well, that's not really, you can't see the Kilimanjaro. You know, everybody's trying to like, look at it like as a science project, man. It's a goofy little song that we never really thought was going to hit the nerve. The song we thought we had was Rosanna. We thought, okay, you know, that's that's really us. That says it all. And we were proud of that. And that was the first thing we cut. The record company said, we love it. We're off the hook. Okay, great. And then we just had fun making this record. And we had, it was our fourth record. We started to get a vibe of as a band. We started to feel like we'd made three records and toured. And it really felt good. Everybody was writing songs. David was going, come on, bring some songs in. And we did. And it was really a, a band effort, really, truly was. And we had a blast doing it. But Africa, who knew? I actually said at one point, I've been quoted, this stupid quote. I was very young. I said, I'll run naked down Hollywood Boulevard if this song's ever a hit. Well, nobody would want to see that now. Plus, I'd probably leave a trail like sparks, you know, my nutsack hitting the, the, the pavement running full speed. But uh, it turned into this massive thing. And then once the TV show, then people parodies of it, then it was like, some club in uh in the uk this could be torture for me they only played that song for like 24 hours in the club now i would have hung myself <laughs> behind the bar after the third play but that's me but it became this thing and then it became an internet thing and then it was everywhere and, and then this girl who was a weezer fan saw it on stranger things and Apparently, those guys were doing covers, you know, and they she begged begged them to do it. Took a while. I don't know. I was not involved in that part. And they're they're not fans. They don't like our band and anything like that. They were just like some middle finger to us, and it backfired on them because now they have to play it every night for the rest of their life. But they weren't doing particularly well, and this brought them up and got we gave them a hit record. So we both won from that. And uh, I tried to reach out to the guy Rivers and say, hey, man, you know, he totally middle fingered me, man, you know. And I'm like, really, dude? The guy is struggling to play bar chords, is middle fingering me. Okay. I'm glad it worked out for him. You know what I mean? I don't have a hold of grudge or nothing like that. It helped us, help them. But you know, we did one of their songs, right, as a reply, you know. And then Universal bought it and shelved it. And this, so, so it wouldn't end up on the radio anywhere. They played it once on uh, KROQ and then. They never played it. They, they buried it. Uh, it was kind of like, wow, man. Okay. Didn't even give us an even shot. But, you know, we did it as a joke, too. It was wink, wink, you know? And then we carried on. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Let's do some cleanup work. The new album, are people going to be able to hear that live? You know, I don't know. Right now, we're, I, I'm, you know, I did the album just as an art project. Scratch the creative itch, make something new, something familiar for the old fans, because you know, we're not going to make Total Records anymore. It's just too complicated in terms of... Ugh, uh, I don't want to get... I never want to see a lawyer again where I'm writing a check to a lawyer, ever. Unless it's to finish my living trust, which I've just done again, updated. But I, you know, I've just spent too much time and money and and brokenhearted moments over litigation. I, it's not worth the hassle or the cost to do that when I just want to make some music with my friends. So we all make rec- solo records and we all work on them. So I still get to work with my friends without paying the ass of of hearing from somebody's lawyer. You can't use this or where's my percentage or all that. We pay everybody every night. We play live. From the gross, you know, people that wish me dead, I pay them. And um, the rest of it is I just shut my mouth and play the guitar. And I got no fight with anybody anymore. Peace and love. No grudges. No anger. I let all that go. I have a very good psychiatrist. And I'm not on any medication right now. Okay. So you talk about you love Spotify. There are multiple members of the band. After the income comes in and it's split all those ways... There's still enough significantly for you? I should be getting a gold-plated thank you note. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, people that aren't in the band get paid. I mean, the people that get paid the most are the guys that played on the the earliest, biggest hit records. I mean, it's obviously a, a math problem in, in terms of how the splits are, but it's all, you know, it, everybody gets free money. If it, those of us that are still Joseph and I that are still working it alive, I mean, you know, we get the advantage of that. But the people that aren't in the band, like, um, are you know, I don't want to get into all this because it's. But, but let's just be clear, because I know when you play live, you have to pay people who are in Toto or yeah. their estates who are not performing with you. Well, we're not able to because they're not on planet Earth anymore. But, but uh, I'm trying to say, states. yes, yes, that's in fact true. I mean, I, I hesitate to say anything because, like, the last thing I need right now is somebody's lawyer to call me up. I heard what you said on the left set, Joe. <laughs> it's, like, it's just like, okay, then let's move on. Kill me <laughs> now, just exacto knife across the neck. Ah, kill me. Let's go back. First Toto album, Hold the Line, huge success. Second album, you know, Hydra has 99, a few other things. Third album doesn't have as much radio success. Fourth album is a monster. How does that affect you personally? I mean, you played on hit records, you played on Thriller, et cetera, but now it's your well, that name was after out that. there. That was after. Thriller was the, we won album of the year. And then the next year, Thriller won album of the year. Okay, we the, I guess we it's 40 years ago, both. and I'm not remembering correctly. But in any event, doesn't change my question. What's it like to be that successful? How does it affect you emotionally? For us, it was redemption. We saved ourselves. We saved our careers as a recording band. Yeah, we could have just stayed studio guys and stuff like that. And some of the best years of my life, I'm very proud to say that I was a Taught, you know first call session guitar player you know it started out when i was a teenager it was a dream to have both to be the first call guy or one of the first call guitar players playing all the hit records with all these amazing artists and have a hit band that was like beyond the dream uh we felt it was overwhelming really i mean we were like oh wow thank god we got a record on the on the radio again rosanna was a hit and oh we're gonna begin but then the thing snowballed and we hadn't we weren't even members of Neris to vote for ourselves you know people got pissed off that we won it's like we were also on like you know god knows how many records that were nominated that year you know what i mean we were on everybody's records well, at least one of us and i won for best r&b song for a song i wrote for george benson with uh, jay graden and randy and uh, uh bill champlin uh, we did that in 10 minutes that was a 10 minute writing session you know that was and it became a grammy award-winning song you know so it was like it was overwhelming to sit there and look around and go like are we really here is this really did we really pull this off i mean it was it was astounding it was a great feeling and then when we won everybody turned on us oh there's a fix those guys know everybody blah 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 we didn't it's like what are you talking about we didn't even vote for ourselves you know we didn't it was a weird freaky thing like every time we get success, everybody would punch us in the face, you know? Okay, just talking about all the songs you wrote and all your royalty streams, a lot of people of our vintage are selling those. Would you ever sell your rights in your songs? That's the dumbest thing you could possibly do in your life if you have something that's worth anything. You know, uh, take for example, Africa. Why would you? sell that that's like you just sold a standard that's going to play for a hundred years from now somebody will be playing it on some 
bizarre keyboard of the future and everybody will laugh and go remember this song from 100 years ago and you know assuming that ai doesn't wipe out every income stream that there is i mean for me i'm going i would rather give my great grandchildren a thousand dollar check from old great granddad they never met you know over my neighboring rights because i played on thousands of records that's a big check every year and that's only in europe you know the u.s decided to middle finger us and not give us anything for that either um but you know all my these records and this these it's it's sort of self-perpetuating you know there are people that will be listening to this stuff maybe not as many people but people i just don't want to give it up Everybody I know that's given it up has regretted it. Going, oh my God, what have I done? Because you don't get anything anymore. It's done. Over. Not another penny. So even if they give you some gazillion dollar check, government gets half, then the people take their percentages, then everybody's who gets a piece or whatever. And the next thing you know, it's watered down. And all of a sudden, this income stream that you've had consistently is that, you know, our songs, believe it or not, get played all the time, and the numbers don't lie. They're there. And why would I want to sell that? I mean, did I look into it? Yeah. I said, well, how much do you think I'm worth, man? And I said, that's not nearly enough. And it was a lot. I said, nah, man, if you're going to give me that now, I'm still convinced somebody knows something, and they ain't telling anybody. What the <laughs> next, what the, why would somebody pay half a billion dollars for somebody's catalog? And not expect, how do you make back that kind of cash? There must be something coming that we don't know about. You know, remember when records went to CDs? They went from seven bucks to 20 bucks. Well, they never yep. adjusted it. They never adjusted it for the artist. But that's when all the executives started flying private and making more money than the artist, like a lot more money. And they never figured, oh, they were retooling. That's why, because well, uh, it was it been forty years of retooling. Have you tooled it yet, guys? <laughs> I agree with everything you say. I don't believe in selling the catalog, and I wouldn't sell the, one of my kids. You know, not when the executives started to make more than the acts ago. This is really fucked up. But it's worse now. <sighs> Unless you, unless you got some action. I said, you can make fun of me being an old, what's the word you like to use? Luddite? Luddite, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I may be that, but you know what? I'm working. I've never been busier. Our band's making more money on the road than we ever have. The, uh, everything's good. You know, I st I'm the only guy that believed that someday we're going to turn this around, man. And I'm here to, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at anybody. I think everything's great. In a world where everything's gone to shit, I feel pretty good about it. As long as I don't read the news, I'm great. <laughs> okay, something we haven't gotten into depth in previous conversations is equipment. So, how many guitars do you own? <laughs> you know, man, you're, people are going to hate me for this. I really don't know. A lot. I have vintage ones. I know exactly where they are at. But I, I did sell some of those at one point stupidly is like sort of like seller's regret or what do they call it um some of my old but i kept my my ap i have my 59 les paul that's an infamous one um and uh i sort of gave it to my son but i said you can't sell it if you do you have to give it share it with your other three brothers and sisters <laughs> but that's after i'm dead in the meantime i still have it and i was threatening to 
to use it, uh, bring out some of the old stuff that I used to use. But, you know, I love my Music Man guitars and I've been playing them for 30 years and that's, uh, and they give me everything I need and they keep getting better and better. But the vintage stuff I keep, I got hundreds of them. They're they're in, in my storage space, you know. So you have a storage space somewhere in L.A. where all this yes, stuff is. Yes. I can't tell you. I'll have to kill you. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, I got all kinds of gear that I've, I, you know, I really need to make a, a, get rid of some of it. But some of it just has a lot of uh, memories from a t- particular era. You know, when I'm dead, my kids can figure out what to do with it, you know. So what's so special about a 59 Les Paul? Well, you know. It was, I don't know, they made, they had a couple of really great years there in the 50s, man, where the wood was right. And the, it was a hands-on craftsmanship. It wasn't like machinery making things, you know what I mean? There's still a few companies, Music Man still makes it by hand, but a lot of these companies, sell, you know, they, they do it in Korea, they do it in China, they do it in all, you know, in these plants, and they just rick them out. Um, I don't know, that was the one to get because all my heroes had those, like, you know, Jimmy Page and, you know, Eric Clapton would play, these, you know. All my Jeff Beck, you know, all my heroes and uh, later friends. Um, you just, I wanted that sound. When you picked it up and played it, I got it. I remember when I bought my 59 Burst, it was on our first tour, and we were in Phoenix somewhere, and, and I went out and got, you know, somebody said there was one there, and I went down and bought it. It was like $4,000. I remember my accountant going, $4,000? You, what do you, you know, you can get these things for free now. What do you need a fourth? I said, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. This is like, and they only made a handful of these. After that, there's no more. There's a lot of fakes now and stuff. You got to be careful with that. Uh, but uh, I bought this thing, and now, I mean, I had it appraised for like, you know, this one because it's been on a lot of hit records. George Harrison played it when he played with us at the amphitheater after Jeffrey Picaro passed, and so I bought it. I mean, it has all this history in it, you know, of all these. And uh, it's worth like $650,000 now. It was appraised. And when I die, it might be worth more than that, you know? What other vintage stuff you got? I got a 51 Esquire, which is a really, uh, it's like the guitar Springsteen uses. It's it's uh, Keith Richards, you know? Uh, I bought that one for a couple of grand, and that's worth like a boatload of dough now, you know? And I break that thing out. I've used it on some Ringo stuff we were working on. But um, I sold a couple of, like a 58 gold top and a, a 1960 Les Paul SG, which was actually a Les Paul. But, um, you know, now I wouldn't be, it's, it's really not cost effective to start collecting vintage gear at that price. Now it's for collectors and people that got to have it, really rich people. Okay, how did you start your association with Music Man? Um, I, I was involved with, um, a company called Valley Arts, which was like, they were making like Frankenstrats, which are like Stratocaster type with different pickups and, uh, electronics and stuff. And they went on, went out of business and they sold to the Koreans at the time. Um, I had just met somebody who was one of my dearest friends, Sterling Ball, and who his father was Ernie Ball, Ernie Ball strings. He first got to make super slinky strings and all that. His son, Sterling took over the company and was working with Eddie Van Halen on making him a, uh, what do you call it? A signature guitar. Cause he, you know, and they, they did. And I was 
hanging out at Ed's and stuff like that. And, you know, they were asking, what do you think of this guitar? What do you think of these pickups? I gave them a little input on the back pickup. And they made Eddie's guitar, which I really dug. And I said, and they said, and Sterling, also known as Biff to his friends, Biff goes, let me, he goes, you're not a Philly. Let me make you a guitar and see if you like it. Give us the, give us your favorite guitar. Let us put it on a computer. And we'll, every little divot, every little thing, we're going to make, we're going to make that happen. And it turns out one of the luthiers at Valley Arts was hired by Sterling to work for his company and it already worked on my stuff. I love what they were doing with Ed. And I got involved in this company and then we became best friends. And I've been there for 30 years this year. And I love the guitars. I've been, there's four different versions. My L4 is coming out and I've done very, very well by this. A lot of people have, bought them and used them over the years and i'm really proud and honored to be a part of that you know so what makes your guitar different from like your conventional strat or something else you know it's a different tool in the toolbox man you don't use one tool for everything you know it's a i it's it's really a combination of a strat and a les paul put into one guitar now the guitars don't make noise until somebody picks it up and plays it so i mean i've played every my famous friends guitars and i just sound like me playing a guitar and they played my guitars and they sound like them playing through so there's no magic guitar or amp there's only magic people a great instrument is a great tool but in the hands of a, an amateur it sounds you can give my super expensive les paul to somebody that can't play and it's not going to make them play any better okay but in terms of strings pickups action what do you desire I'm a pretty simple guy. If it gives me what I want, I mean, uh, it's up to me to make noise come out of it, make some music come out of it. Um, I, I've been using Ernie Ball strings since I was a kid, you know, so that was the no-brainer. And that's the mo most amazing company. I mean, anything I need, it could be shipped anywhere. They'll be there the next day. It's an unbelievably incredible company. Unbelievably incredible. Sorry, I'm not speaking properly now. I'm old um yeah i love it i mean it's not I, i'm not a tech guy i don't take my guitars apart and put them back together again because if i did I'd, there'd be parts left out like <laughs> my dad used to get mad at me when i'd make models when i was a kid because i put it together and then i'd leave parts out i go oh, i forgot i didn't mean to put that in <laughs> i'm not an idiot i'm just lazy okay what about amps I use Bogner amps, and I have been using, which is a Marshall-style amp, but it's a little bit more high-tech than that. I've been using that for, God, 15, 12, 15 years now. I've had them all. I used to use old Fender amps. I used to use Marshalls. I had some weird customized amps that I have in my collection. But in terms of a workhorse that gives me everything I need, it's the Bogner amps. Like My whole new record is just the Bogner amp and a Music Man guitar. Same guitar, same amp on every song. So you can, if you bother to listen to it, you can hear the versatility of the different tones that I can get out of this effortlessly. I'm not into Dragon Eye. I used to be famous for always oh, all the big racks of digital gear. It was a, and there's, it was a great time. It was a great era. You know what I mean? Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I wanted to simplify myself. You know, so I just used a couple stop boxes on the ground, which are little effects pedals that could be taken out and thrown away and changed over. And I, do everything manually stepping on it myself you know if i want it and i just have a little pedal board play it through the guitar into the amp nice talking to you 
Okay, let's go back to the very beginning. I'm sure you people talk are about your father. <laughs> so where did you exactly grow up? Moore Park and Tahunga Avenue in uh, North Hollywood on a street called Elmer across the street from what is now a park used to be a dirt lot. When I was a kid, it was a lot of fun. So, you know, L.A. used to have orange groves, all this stuff. What was it like in the 50s and 60s where you grew up? Well, I grew I was born in 1957, so I don't really much. The 50s are sort of a wash. But I was a child of the 60s, man, you know, and, and it was greatest time ever for, I mean, when the Beatles hit, my life went from black and white to color. I said, I have to do that. Whatever that is, I wanted to be George Harrison. I wanted to make that sound. You know, my first first solo that drove me mad was the guitar solo, and I saw her standing there. And I must have lifted up my, my parents, bought me, oh, look at how cute that is. He loves the Beatles, that little fad that was going to just be there for five minutes, you know? So I got a, a, a really shitty acoustic guitar, which is now a lamp in my house. My parents, <laughs> made, my parents made it into a lamp and gave it to me on my 21st birthday. It was like a $5K guitar that was like screwed on neck. The action was like 10 feet off the neck, a punishment guitar. But they gave me that and a copy of Meet the Beatles when I was like seven or eight years old, you know, maybe just turning eight. And I, I didn't, I became obsessed, you know, and I would lift up the needle and just on the, on the record player at the house and just play the solo over and over again. So my dad screamed at me to stop doing that. You know, if I hear this one more time, you know, <laughs> I could, I'll be whacked around the house or something. But, uh, I, you know, I never, I never grew out of it, man. I just had to grow into it. I was determined to make noise with this thing, you know? So what came after the cheap $15 guitar? A $20 guitar. It didn't get much better. I got an electric guitar that was not much better. It was an Astrotone guitar that I got. Which I really wish I still had it, man. That would probably be worth a lot of money now, ironically. Because a lot of people like to buy those old... Uh, crappy guitars and uh, they swear by them you know i'm i don't get that but okay um but i taught myself how to play on it and, and a very strange thing happened to me i mean and one day i could was struggling and one day all of a sudden my hands fell into the first position chords and it was freakish and weird i could get into this whole story about my grandmother with the psychic well, 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 tell it you know? tell it no, my, when I was, my mother was pregnant at 19 years old, right? And this would have been 1957 or the end of 56 into 57. I was born in October, so 10 months back from that. Whenever. Anyway, my grandmother was a hipster before her time. She was into like new agey stuff before there was a, a term. She had friends that were different. Psychics, which you wouldn't say that out loud then because you might as well say you were Satan's sister or something like that. So one of my grandma's friends came over, my mom's mother who's very hip. God bless her. She was fantastic. And she put her hand on my mom's pregnant tummy and said, no, it's a boy. I hear music all around him, music. And something's going to happen to him when he's seven or eight. And later down the line, people are going to know who this kid is. Music all around him. And my mother said, oh, great. I'm going to have a musician son, which she imagined like a guy with a little beatnik beard with a <laughs> needle right. hanging out of his arm, a junkie guy, you know jazz musician or something you know and i saw the beatles on the ed sullivan show got a guitar and, and i all of a sudden one day i i could play it it was the weirdest thing i could never explain to nobody i'm sure everybody's going yeah bullshit right blah, 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 blah. i swear to god it happened to me and then from there 
I was able to hear things and pick it out on the guitar. Then I meet all these older guys. I started, and I had my first band when I was nine, but everybody else was 12. So, I oh, mean, wait, I, wait, 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 you're nine. You, you have this skill. You got a guitar. You got a knee up. How do you find the band or how do they find you? Well, at the time, after the Beatles hit, everybody wanted to be in a band. Now, some of the older kids could actually play guitar, and then they plugged in an electric guitar. And understand, music back then was much easier to play. There wasn't, didn't require a lot of technical ability unless you were a classical musician or a jazz musician or bluegrass or something like that, you know, where technical ability really counted. But if you were just listening to pop music, rock music, the Beatles, the Stones, that was our whole life. The British invasion was our whole life. And I could play, uh, you know, uh, the songs of the era. You know, I could play like Gloria by them, you know, I could, and we, and House of the Rising Sun and then Beatles stuff, you know, I saw her standing there. Um, please, please me. We just sing and play, man. You know, we could, you buy, then I bought, you know, the songbook of the Beatles and showed you the positions of chords that I didn't know. So I sponged up all that. And then I found older guys that could play good and I stole all their stuff. And I, I just was a sponge. I could play whatever. And then my ears started working for me and I could play stuff off the radio. So the older guys wanted to play with me because I could teach everybody how to play their parts. And it was just, for me, it was my life. For them, perhaps, maybe not until I, some of the guys in my neighborhood started picking it up. And then I met my dear friend, Michael Landau, who's a legendary guitar player. When we were 12 years old, we were the two hotshot guitar players in LA. You know, we were the same, you know, and we've been best friends ever since, and it worked out well for us. But we found like-minded people in junior high school. The bass player in our band now, John Pierce, uh, who was he started out with us, and he was in our high school band. And when I met the Picaro brothers in high school, everything changed. And then it was real serious, and we found out about studio musicians. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so you're in your neighborhood. You meet Landau. Where do you go to high school? Grant High School in the Valley. Okay. And that's when we went from amateurs to taking the professional route very seriously and my and a guy something really helped me out there was a guy that moved in next door to my parents house who was the touring drummer for helen reddy his <laughs> name was his name was mike berkowitz his sweetheart of a guy and my father said wow this guy's not famous but he owns a house like what's the deal so my father was like talking to him so what is this you know well, you know, she learned how to read music and all that stuff, you know, because I was playing by ear from the time I was 7 to 14. And that's when Mike moved in next door and we started hearing about studio musicians and stuff. Like, who are these names on the back of these albums that I love? Same names. Who are these guys? And uh, that's the short version of it. And then my dad said, okay, man, you're going to have to study music. If you're going to do this, I want you to... He talked to his friend, Carl Fortina, who was the main contra musical contractor at Paramount, because my dad was working on, at the time, I think it was right before Happy Days or something like that. My dad was an assistant director, production manager for television and film, as was my grandfather. But I have no interest in that. That was heinous to me. Boring, boring, boring. Uh, music was my whole thing, and I had, a, I had a gift for it, I guess, and to take it to that next level, my dad wanted me to study. As it turns out, when he wanted me to study is when I met the Picaro brothers and all this stuff. And me and all my friends started studying music hard. Like, we had to catch up, learning how to read. We could play good, but we didn't have the basics, you know? So it was really hard to learn how to read music after you'd played for a while. Because it was you have to go back to Mary Had a Little Lamb 
in terms of ability to sight read the notes on the paper. And that was harder to do, but you know, you had to get it together. So how long did you study for? I would say I put 10 years of study into three years. All we did was music, music, music all day long. I studied guitar privately. I was studying orchestration. I was studying at the first year of the Dick Grove Music School for jazz improvisation, sight reading, harmony and theory. In school, I was taking piano, sight singing, harmony theory. And then we had our band, and then there was other bands, and then there was people were just starting to make demos. So we started to play on sessions, like demo sessions for singer-songwriters sort of like joining the minor leagues for studio playing before because nobody had home studios or recording devices. If they got any time at all, they would hire guys. You get paid 20 bucks a tune or something like that. So started to get a feel of what it was like, you know, headphone studio, time, sound, getting it all together, coming up with parts really fast on the spot without any rehearsal or demos or anything like that. We were the demos, so we had to come up with our stuff. Turns out that was a useful skill to learn because I spent, 98% of the time as a professional studio musician coming up with my own parts on everything we ever did. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, so how'd you meet the Bukaro brothers? High school, 10th grade. There was all bands. You know, we already had, I already had bands and stuff, you know, pretty good ones, actually. Just and, just stop here for a second. Were the bands playing gigs for money? Yeah. They actually paid us money to play. You know, I mean, not a lot, 
but by the time we had Still Life together, which was our high school band with, you know, Steve Picaro's band, I met Steve Picaro through our music teacher, Mr. Neal. Uh, he said, I got there's a guy you should meet. And Steve had the hotshot band, Still Life, you know, the first version of it. And we had heard Jeff Picaro was already a legend at that point before he was even famous yet. He was like, the, have you heard this guy, the best drummer that there is? And, you know, <clears throat> and when I met Steve, we hit it off and he had a band and he wanted to, he was, I'm looking for another guitar player. And so me and I, I grabbed Mike Landon. I said, come on, we'll do this together. We were convinced we could both get the gig. Cause it was at the time when Steely Dan was really happening. A lot of two guitar playing player bands that you know, they were looking for that sort of a thing. So rather than choose between us, he said, I want both of you guys to be in it. And that, that's how I met David Page and how I started the meeting all these people that were the names on the back of records after high school. And I got out, I, it was just, it just happened really fast. All of a sudden, everything started to happen really quickly. And I got the gig with Boss Skaggs for the Silk Degrees tour. That changed my life. And that was thanks to Jeff and Steve Picaro and Jay Winding, who was a famous keyboard player at the time. Um, and he, one of my, he was a close brother of mine. I met Willie Ornelas, drummer who introduced me to Larry Carlton, who Jeff knew and everybody. And I started meeting all the guys Then I met David Foster, the young David Foster. And we, and he was a big, huge help to me. And we became fast friends and I did all his stuff. And then I started playing on hit records. Boz, Boz was looking for a band, you know, and he was looking for a guitar player and Jeff and those guys said, yeah, get Lukather. And I got there. And the day, first day of rehearsal, I was so excited to get this gig. I wanted that gig so bad. Because Boz had, like, you know, one of the biggest records of 76, 77. And so I got to do the tour in 77. And the first day, Les Dudek, who was a famous uh, blues player, you know, he was working with Boz, more of a, in the style of the Almond Brothers, the, you know, that more southern rock guitar player. And this stuff was, you know, Pages writing had more, you know, adult chords in it and a little bit more of a different groove. And the first day of rehearsals, Les and Boz got in a fight and Les quit. And Boz turned to the band. We're all rehearsing at SIR down in Hollywood, you know. And, and Boz goes, I think we need to get another guitar player. And Jeff stood up and said, no, you don't. Pointed at me. He goes, call some out and let, let him play. And he called out the song Jump Street, which was a slide guitar song, actually. But I didn't have a slide, so I just did it my own way. And I... Apparently did really well because everybody kind of applauded for me afterwards. And Boz goes, well, I don't need another guitar player. I was 19 years old, which was weird at the time. I was very young, not by today's standards, but very young at the time to be on that kind of a tour. I mean, I couldn't even go to the bar and have a drink after the gig, you know? And, you know, <laughs> I got this gig. It changed my life. Boz changed my life. I, I owe so much to him. He made a big deal about me, invited me to play on the follow-up record which I gave me some solos on that, which really opened up my career. People going, wow, this is an important record. Who's this guy? This is good. With Get me that guy. And then Jay Graydon, who is like one of my oldest friends, famous record producer, guitar player. He was, he was the A guy at the time. He turned me on to all, you get Lugather, man. You know, and then he got out and went to be a producer and I, he gave me all of his work and that's how it snowballs. You know, you play on a hit record, then everybody finds out about you. And they hire you and you deliver and you have to deliver. It's luck to get in the door, but not luck to get called back twice. 
And so I lived that life. And then the band was starting to happen. It was all at one time. It was like overwhelming. I don't even know how I, how we made the time for it all. But I woke up with a smile and went to bed with a smile every day of my life for like 20 years, you know? I mean, it was all working for us, you know? It was really an incredible time in my life. Okay. Going back to high school, I mean, as you mentioned, there were all these bands that grew up with the Beatles, but certainly in the late 70s, mid-70s, bands were a really big deal in LA. I mean, you had Van Halen at the Starwood, whatever. You know, did you think you were going to make it? How was Still Life relative to these other bands? Well, prior to Still Life, we had another band that auditioned for Gazaris when Van Halen was headlining, right? And we got the gig until they found out we were 16. (laughs) And then they said, you can't work here. And so, and and the Van Halen thing, we'd always heard about Van Halen, but we never heard them. Like we'd all hang out at, me and Landau and and a bunch of our friends would go down to Guitar Center Hollywood and play all the guitars we couldn't afford and play all the amps. And they used to let us do it because we were good. We were like, look at these guys. They can play this. And one of the guys who worked there goes, there's this guy from Pasadena, Eddie. You should meet him someday. We're like, yeah, 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 right. And we didn't, I didn't know Eddie until after the first album came out. I heard about him, but I didn't know he was the wonder, you know, he was this amazing guitar player. And I mean, because there wasn't really the communication wasn't like it is now. You'd hear rumblings. Oh, there's this band. Oh, yeah. I wonder if we're better than they are or whatever, you know, cocky little bastards that we were. <clears throat> and, you know, and then it all came together. We all became friends in the end and, you know, we were doing our first album. I was doing a solo, and Paige walks in with the first Van Halen record. He goes, I got something for you. to. I want to play something. And I go, Van Halen? Yeah, I heard of them. And he plays Eruption. He drops the needle on Eruption, and my fucking jaw hits the floor. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Who is that? How is he doing that? And I got to play. I'm thinking, oh, I'm pretty good, man, for a 19-year-old kid. And then fucking Eddie comes in and blows the socks off everybody. And... Then I was on a quest to meet him. I'm like, I got to find out who this guy is. I want to meet Eddie Van Halen. And obviously that album just, you know, changed rock and roll forever. Uh, and then added to like, we meet uh, at the California World Music Festival in 78. We were both on the bill and we met and we said, we got to hang out. And then uh, some time went by and he called me on the phone and said, come over to the house. I said, oh, great. So I went over to his house and stayed a year one night. and we became very fast friends immediately and he would play me stuff like you know they were already on their it was he was doing he had a demo for jump he played for me i said dude keyboards too i said this is incredible this is a number one record he goes yeah 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 but roth doesn't like it i go what are you talking about he goes i have the keyboards i go oh come on i go this this is a smash record and that was the demo of it <clears throat> and you know, it turns out I was right. But you know, I mean, he didn't need me to tell him it was. It was a you know already in stone that that was going to be a hit record. It was just a brilliant piece of music, you know. And I've always loved the guys. You know, I mean, broke my heart to lose my friend. You know, we were close, man. I, I adore him. And Alex and I are friends. You know, I, I still talk to him all the time. And I'm I'm like Switzerland. I love all the guys. The only guy I don't know is David Lee Roth. I met him a couple of times, but I don't know him. But, you know, I was, uh, other than that, I mean, Mike and Sammy and all those guys and everybody else who had come through. I mean, we're all buddies, you know, and those friendships I made and most of my f- still have, assuming 
people are still here, you know? They were at the stage now, that's what sucks about getting old is losing all your friends. So hanging with Eddie, did you learn stuff hanging with him? <laughs> no. <laughs> because it wasn't what our hangs were about, man. We'd play music for each other. We'd always play each other what we were working on. Uh, here's this, I'm working on this record. What do you think? And he play me stuff. I play him stuff. <clears throat> Other than that, we just hung out as buddies, man. There was never like, oh, sure. I, you know, the first night we hung out, you know, we played some guitars a little bit. You know, let me check out your guitar. Let me check out your, you know, where's that magic amp that was on the first album? There's no magic amp, man. I sound just like me coming to this stuff, you know? Like, it's the magic is in the person who's playing the guitar, you know? You can get the same gear. It doesn't mean anything, you know? I mean, I've believe me, I played a lot of famous guitars. It didn't it didn't help my playing at all, but uh, it was neat to play and see how they set it up because everybody's guitars are set up a little differently. It's a personal thing, you know. Is it you who's just Switzerland, or does everybody get along? I made a point to try to be Switzerland in my life. You know what I mean? I really have. Um, I know what it's like to be in turmoil in your own band. I mean, it's, it really sucks. Um, but the friendships that I've made, I've kept, you know, and, and they mean a lot to me. I've only lost a few buddies along the way in terms of friendships, but that's usually some way business oriented, you know, and not really my fault. It's just a different point of view or, you know, that opens up a can of worms I'd rather not get into, but at the, you know, I make friends for life unless something weird happens. Okay. But. If I talk to the lead guitarist of another famous band, would he say he's friends with all the guitarists or would he feel competitive? Oh, there's, I don't feel competitive with anybody anymore, man. When, that's a young man's game. When you're, you know, when you're young, you want to be the fastest gun in the West or whatever, you know? And I don't necessarily mean fastest in technical ability, although that may play into it back in the day when that mattered. But I'm so glad not to be like that now. I purposely played very simple on my new record. I didn't, I didn't hot dog it at all. I play, I downshifted. Play melody. Play, play something more memorable. Because there's a seven year old kid in Japan that can play faster than you can blink. You know, and it, it almost becomes a parlor trick that's meaningless. I mean, there are some really young talent. Don't get me wrong. There's some incredible younger players that are just great blues players. Great people doing different things with the instrument uh there's there's some new bands i'm just whoa what what the hell is that there some young guitar players that are and female guitar players that are really incredible you know you're never going to hear the word oh she's good for a chick which is completely insulting i understand that but the girls are like you know that girl's badass man you better look out you better look out man it's 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 she's just i look at the women guitar players as just great guitar players if I started naming them all off right now, and there's a bunch that I could, I'd forget somebody and feel bad, so I don't want to do that. But the watch out for the girls. They're coming, and they're just as good, if not better, than most of the guys. Okay, and who are your guitar heroes? Oh, man, you know who my guitar heroes are. We just lost one of them. Jeff Beck was probably one of, one of my favorites. and I thought know, he was the absolute best. I can't believe he's gone either. Well, we were friends, man. You know, I made a record with him that never came out, produced it in 1997, but we never got to finish it because he got into techno and left it all behind. I mean, Jeff's probably got 15 albums unfinished in the vault somewhere, but he was like, I don't want anybody to hear this stuff. So 
<clears throat> I just saw him last summer. We did a festival together in Europe, in France, the one-off thing, where there's, you know, 20 bands on the same festival. And it was just great to see him again because I hadn't seen him for a while. And he's with Johnny Depp, who's a really lovely guy and a really nice guy. And uh, they were just having fun together, man. You know, and the band was kid. He played so great. And it was like, he was like, I saw him. He's like, oh, don't expect too much. I haven't been playing. I'm going, shut up. You're going to devastate. And he did. Just ripped it a new asshole, you know. It's like, you know, well, there's Jeff Beck and then there's everybody else. Um, and that's not to take anything away from all the other amazing musicians I know, but I think Jeff was like every guitar player's favorite guitar player. What about him switching from using a pick to using his fingers? He told me a story once that the reason why he started not using a pick is because he was on the Ed Sullivan show and dropped his pick. And he flipped out. I'm not going to have this thing getting make or break me. Now, he told me that story, but, you know, he told a lot of stories. You know, I mean, sometimes <laughs> I think, are you just bullshitting me or what? Because when he picked up a pick and started playing, it sounded funny. It's, you know, he, he did in the early days, of course. You know, he used to pick, he used, to pick, he used hybrid version of both. But Jeff Beck sounded like Jeff Beck when it was just all skin on strings. That's how, the magic is in him. I played his guitar. I don't sound like Jeff Beck playing his guitar. He'd pick up an out-of-tune guitar, and when he played it, it was in tune. I'm convinced he had perfect pitch, but he didn't even know what that was. I mean, he was very unschooled. Everything was by ear and by feel, and he made a point. He told me once, he goes, I, if it's normal, if it sounds normal, I'm not interested. So he would just come at whatever it was, a simple melody, notes or notes, you know, with uh, an E's and E, an F sharp's an F sharp. However, how you attack it and how you make that feel with the touch is what changes everything. It's like your vibrato's a thumbprint, a thumbprint. Nobody has no two alike. You know, that's, that's the whole thing. Touch is everything when it comes to playing the guitar. How about people who are not stars, who are studio players? Anybody come to mind you think is especially great? Oh, they're all great. I mean, all the guys that I came up with, my heroes, Larry Carlton, Lee Rittenauer, Jay Graydon, Ray Parker Jr., Dean Parks. Uh, gee, those are the guys, the A guys, when I first hit the scene. And then my buddy Michael Landau, then Dan Huff. Then there was, oh, I'm going to start forgetting guys. There's Tim Pierce, who's a brilliant guitar player. Michael Thompson, brilliant. There's some new guys that I don't know, but I hear there's some new blood in there now. Uh, there, there are other guys, Paul Jackson Jr., uh, David Williams, the late, great David Williams. Um, yeah, those are the guys that, you know, we were all working together and, and we were all brothers, man. I mean, it was, uh, I learned everything. Those guys are my heroes. They're inspiration. Still are. Is there any session work at all now? Yeah, the guys doing it now do it like well, I'm at my son's home studio right now talking to you. Everybody does it like this. So I'm looking at you on the screen going, okay, you want me to do another take? Do you want me to do this? And everybody's their own engineer, studio, and player. There's like live recording sessions where everybody shows up and plays together is rare. It's financially not feasible for most people now because they took all the money. Once, every, once the record companies figured out there was home studios and you can make records for, you know, 10, you know, a hundred times less than what we were making them for. Then they took the budgets away. They say, oh, here's X amount of dollars. 
you can keep whatever you don't use. So everybody's like, well, I'm going to keep this money for myself. I'm not, I mean, I'd like to hire so-and-so, but you know, maybe he'll do it for cheap now. Because that's where the union failed us miserably. Do you, how much, now, I played on thousands of records, and that's not a facetious count. All right? Over my years. All the 46, 47 years, whatever it is now. And how much do you think my union pension is per month? I have no idea. Now, understand something. Television and film are the guys that you have to sight read anything that's put in front of you. And it can be classical, scary stuff, or it could be dumb stuff. Easy. You don't know what you're going to get. So you know, those guys, they read the notes. And they do it incredibly well. That's a talent and a gift. Wow. I mean, I can read music, but not like that. You know, my chops are way down. I haven't done it in a long time. It's like speaking French and when you're living in France. You forget it if you're not living in France for a while. Anyway, getting back to it, that's one thing. And those guys got good pensions for some reason. But the recording guys, guys like me, who 98% of the time made up my own parts on the spot with no rehearsal, no demos, play something great. Here's a, here's a, a chord sheet with, you know, letters written on it, counter off, you know, we get, we got shit. Well, how much do you think? Out of all the records I played for all the years I've been in, what's your I've never guess? been a member of Union. I have no idea. If I'm going to guess, I'm going to fuck it up. Just tell us. No, but that's why I want you to guess, because you don't know. Okay. When did you start receiving your pension? Well, I took it a couple of years ago because I figured, well, I better get it before there's nothing. Okay, no, but here's the deal: nobody joins the union anymore, so you can't replenish the 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 fund for the old guys. So when the no new guys join, where's the money coming in to pay the pensions for life? They have the worst medical. So I'm thank God I got after SAG because I sing and stuff. But even that's gonna they're gonna throw me off of that in October, <clears throat> even though I've been on it for life. But that's a whole other story. But the musicians union, I mean. You'd think they would have gone to bat for us, right? No, they didn't. So I get $1,000 a month taxable at 53% living in California. <laughs> I wouldn't even be able to afford to live under the freeway for that. Okay, let me just ask you. Somebody calls you up to play on a track. Do you charge them and how much? These days, two things happen. First off, I don't do it much anymore. Right. I played on a lot of people's stuff for free. Just saying, yeah, man, I love that. That's great. You know, I, there's a great guitar player named Mark Letary who's part of the whole snarky puppy group of musicians, young musicians that are absolutely phenomenal musicians. Incredible. He's a badass guitar player, a sweet guy. And he just found me and said, hey, man, would you play on my record? How much would it cost to play on my record? I said, Mark, I go, what do you need me for, number one? Two, if you really want me to do this, I'll do it for nothing. I said, I'll come up to my son's place where I'm sitting right now, and I'll, and, uh, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw something on there. If you, if you like it, keep it. If you don't, fuck it. Now, that was a choice. Now, if somebody that I, comes and says, I want to pay you a million dollars to play on my session, being facetious, but you know what I mean, like a lot of money, you got my attention, maybe. But if I don't take the music, I don't want to do it. You know what I mean? I, I I don't want to take somebody's money just to be a whore, you know, and take make them feel bad because I got it done in 20 minutes and they spent all this money. You know, I was like, okay, uh, I, I, I'd rather be enthusiastic about it and do it as a favor. 
And, and we do this a lot amongst ourselves uh, with the barter system. Like I paid all the guys money, double scale at least, legitimate money to play on my record. Other people, I go like, I'll do yours if you do mine. And we do a lot of stuff like that. You know what I mean? Because there's not a lot of dough in it anymore, you know? I mean, we can make a little bit, but, you know, I have a a big nut. I mean, I have a lot of families, divorces, and four children. Well, two of them are married. They don't need me anymore. But I got two kids that I still got to put through school and college and, you know, buy cars and you know, nurture them until they're adults and they can take care of themselves. So, I mean, I got a lot, you know, being a session player was like the greatest times of my life, but it's time to move out of the way. I got, I, I stopped doing it when I start feeling like I better get out before I don't, they stop calling me. I'd rather go out on top and just, I had the good fortune of being able to start a solo career on the side and do some other weird side projects and still have the band to make a living. I was told by Carlton, Graydon, and Ritt and all the guys, you got 10, 12 years, then you got to get out make room for somebody else when you're a recording musician when you're a tv film guy once you get that gig you never leave town you stay there until you die and you get the great pet six figure pensions and all that stuff if you're a recording guy for some reason we got fucked on the deal i don't know who made that deal but it's a drag for all the musicians like myself who maybe don't have a band to carry on the rest of their life and make a living and and you know feel like you're a valuable member of the musical society Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Okay, so you're in high school, 
You go out on the, what's it like going out on the road? You can't go to a bar, but that doesn't mean you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't get laid. What's it uh, like yeah. being 19 going on the road? It was a lot of fun. Cause I did sneak beers out to us and stuff. You know I mean? You know, we were, but we weren't drunks at that point. We were just kids having a good time. Um, when it all went crazy and it did like the late, you know, anybody that lived through the, you know, 1975 to 1995 knows what I'm talking about. I mean, it went, you know, everybody went out of there, got a little bit out of their minds, you know, all the, the drugs, the booze and the hanging and the craziness. You know, you, you read about all this stuff when you're a kid. Oh, when I'm a rock star, I get to do this and throw TVs out the window and be an asshole. Uh, it's not really what how you want to live your life. You know what I mean? Uh, and as an older guy, I mean, yeah, we had fun, but we took the gigs very serious. After hours, whatever is whatever. But like, you know, there was all these rumors about all the drugs, everything that we were supposed to be doing. Man, come on, man. To have your own band do that and then play on everybody else's records doing 20 some odd sessions a week. You can't be that fucked up, man. If if you if you are, then you don't get called back. So you have a very short career, or you get big time and outprice yourself. Oh, I need X amount of dollars to do this session. People, you might be able to get away with that for a minute, but it's like anybody else when they fall down the ladder. There's nobody there to catch you. They just move out of the way and watch you splat. You know. So I was I was given a lot of great tips and rules to live by by my older peers. Do this, don't do that. You know, shut up, don't be like that. And I listened, you know, but now I, you know, we do the shows. I, you know, I, I haven't had a drink in almost 14 years. I don't do drugs. I don't do, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, that's not how I live. And, you know, I mean, I, the booze got to me. That was my poison. I would say in the two thousands was when I got out of control and I almost ruined everything. I did ruin a lot of things. I, mostly I hurt myself and my reputation. Because I became a drunk, and it was pitiful. And I'm really ashamed of that, and I'm really sorry about it. But I hit the wall, and and that was it. And I just I threw away the cigarettes and the booze and didn't look back, you know? Well, okay, how did you decide to stop, and how did you literally stop? Uh, man, I knew I was swirling the bowl, man. I knew I felt like shit all the time, and I was just trying to chase that away. By doing more and one day i was right at the end of my last marriage i was so beat down from it, uh, i was out all night drinking and being an idiot and i it was like 10 in the morning i was like oh i feel so bad i started drinking in the morning to make the pain go and i couldn't look at myself in the mirror when i was shaving i'd be like i'd look away i go i know i looked bad i felt bad i wasn't playing well i hated myself my my life was falling apart and i had a a little girl that had just come into the world who's now going to be 16 but at that time i started going this is not good man i can't do this and people were worried about me and i, I was blowing it to be quite honest with you i've been given this incredible gift of a career and you know, alcoholism runs in my family, man. My mother died from it. You know, other members of my family have been crippled by it. They've either died or come out of it. And I didn't want to be a casualty. I, I, I figured I better do this. And I felt so bad. And I was, it was one of those days, it was like worst day ever. You know, you wake up in the morning, you feel like an elephant shit in your mouth and sucked your 
you sucked all your soul out and you i walked out to the outside garage and i opened up the freezer and there was a bottle of vodka in the freezer you know and i just grabbed it and i started chugging it like it was water and it was 10 in the morning and my then ex my then wife walked out saw me she and i turned around she's caught me she goes so it's come to this now huh <laughs> and i was like and i and i hated her for telling me the truth and i said that's it man i'm fucking done i am done i'm the, the cigarettes the booze does she yeah yeah you quit before for a month you'll be back i go not this time and i never did never went back never touched uh, booze again i did pitifully pick up cigarettes again for a minute during the pandemic and i was feeling all sorry for myself and fucked up on antidepressants and i started and i quit i'm not i haven't smoked i'm not smoking anymore but for a minute there that's a dangerous one smoking cigarettes is awful it's the most awful thing and i didn't drink you know i mean that's the one thing i didn't crack there and i didn't you know but you know i've done some very shameful things in my life man i'm not a perfect guy i'm not trying to put myself out there as be this saint when i'm not but i try to learn from my mistakes so did you go to rehab, did you go to AA, or you just did it all yourself? Stop one day, that was it. Well, no, I didn't go. At that point, I, didn't, I had never gone to an AA meeting. I just stopped. But apparently, you know, I, there was anger still left inside of me, which I didn't believe when people told me, oh, man, you know, you don't drink anymore, man, but you're, uh, you're still mad at everybody, mad at the world, you know? And I had a chip on my shoulder from carrying around all the negative vibe that was coming out. I took it as a personal... If somebody dogged the band or somebody, I took it personally, which I shouldn't have. Now I laugh. I go, okay, well, hey, change the channel, you know? But, you know, for a while there, I was trying to drink all that pain and all this other weird shit that happened from my childhood, which I don't want to get into. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Give us a hint. What do you, you portrayed a relatively uh, pleasant childhood. What, well, my what childhood, was actually wrong? Well, I've been bullied. When I was in grammar school, it was really rough. Taking the bus every day. When I was still single digits before I found my, I mean, the guitar actually saved my life in, in school because I was, when I played at the fifth grade graduation in the auditorium and we could play, I was in a band, we could play and the girls screamed for us and all that stuff. I mean, prior to that, every day was, uh, somebody was torturing me, you know, and because I was little and I was terrible in sports, I weighed about, you know, 10 pounds wet. I was painfully shy, if you can imagine. <laughs> no but okay uh, no but i was man i mean i i was afraid of everybody and everybody saw my weakness and picked at it and an era when i was like i don't want to get on the school bus and like you know and my parents are you getting on the school bus you know you gotta my father's like tough it out man like when you used to get the old i'll see you at the flagpole at three o'clock i'm gonna kick your ass you had to show up and i was an easy beat down like when, like, remember playing dodgeball in school with the big red rubber ball? You're not supposed to throw it at the guy's head. It's always hit my face, smack on, full blast. You know, and and I, you know, it was. I know it sounds like oh, poor, beautiful Luke at their blah blah blah. It was humiliating. You know, and then when I was, you know, it's just kids. It can be so cruel. And I'd see. I tell my old man, it's like, we gotta go show up at the flag boys. Like, you gotta show up. My dad was a marine. You don't puss out. You know, and you know, yeah, it made me a, it gave me an edge, which I maybe is still in there somewhere. It comes out every now and then. 
something I'm not very proud of. You know, it was more like fight or flight, whatever. I don't know what that, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. But I mean, emotionally speaking, I had, and there was weird shit in my family and stuff. You know, I don't want to dig up everybody's dirty laundry. But um, yeah, it was, there was, for as much great as there was, there was equally some weird stuff, you know? Every family has it, man. You know? And I, you know, I feel comfortable in my own skin for the first time in my life these last two years coming out of the pandemic. And I really learned to really appreciate what I had and who I had and the people around me. And my, most of all, my kids, you know, and the people that I love to hang out with. Because the, the last incarnation of the band ended on my, ironically, my birthday, October 21st, 2019. I walked away from that going, there's some people here that I'm never going to speak to again, ever in my life. And I said, maybe we'll, I said, I got to get away from this. And then the pen and said, I got, I want to put together another version. I talked to Paige. She said, I still want to keep doing this, but there's some guys that just don't want to be here and hate my guts. I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, so I, we were going to do all this and then the pandemic hit. And then I was like, all dressed up and nowhere to go. And that started me, the depression and all the other weird stuff. I was really happy for a while. Tell me about going to the hospital. I had a nervous breakdown and uh, on this, and uh, it was really scary. I don't know how deep I want to get into this because it's uh, they're, 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 it was humiliating, really, I, that I let myself go. But I, I had a nervous breakdown d- thanks to the fuck, uh, to overdoing it with the antidepressant stuff. I was in there with like psycho murderers and homeless. I mean, I'm like, I was so not in the right place at the right time. But I look at this as God smacked my ass down. He said, okay, bud asshole one more try i had actually semi near-death experience you know like i saw the light the tunnel and the light of god and all these things and i thought i was dead i really i mean uh, i went out i don't know how out i was but when i came to i was in a hospital with a guy sitting at the end of my bed with a gun oh yeah i'm like where am i, I said i'm in hell or i wake up and i look behind me i'm in bed 13 I go, I'm this it. I'm in hell. I died and went to hell. I am an asshole. I'm not worthy of anybody's love or anything. I'm a piece of shit. And I kept going, I got to take a piss. Can I go take a piss? I go, I'm in hell, aren't I? He goes, you're not in hell. I go, this is hell. Look around me. This is, there's nobody here but you and me in this green room. And I'm 13. I'm like, coming. how did I get here? What happened to me? And it all started to come back together. And, you know, and so they threw me in this joint with these insane people. There was a couple of people in there that were nice to me. But the guy, the main guy, the Sigmund Freud wannabe dude, he'd be asking me things like looking at me, like trying to get me to confess the sins I didn't have, you know? You know? And, it was, and it was just, I realized I got to play this guy to get out. And he didn't want to, he thought, it got weird when he started asking me how much money I made. The, 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 the head yeah, I realize. Why is he asking how much money you made? Because he's looking at me like going, you don't, he knew I didn't belong in this joint. He's trying to figure me out and Googled me or whatever. Said, okay, let's see what this cat's all about. And when I, he, he threw out a number at me and I laughed at him. I said, I went like this. No, it's more <laughs> than that. 
That's just his finger pointing up for the non-visual. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, I mean, I I didn't want to say. I mean, I say, you know, he threw out a small figure, and I said, I said, I do a little better than that. And I pointed up. I didn't want to say because I knew what he was trying to get out of me. He's like, how much more money did I make than he did? And then he turned sour on me. He wasn't going to let me out. Like I was supposed to be three days out. Okay, that scared the fuck out of me, and I was really upset. But anyway. The only way for me to get out was to go to a rehab. So I said, well, I'm not addicted to anything, but I'll go just to get out of here. So I said, give me a, I told my son, I was like, I had to use a pay phone. It was like scary as hell in there, man. I mean, there was guys, just being in prison, man. I'm going to don't belong in here. What the fuck? And scared the holy living shit out of me. I mean, more than anything in my whole life. And I've seen some pretty frightening stuff in my life. That was the one. And so I checked myself. I mean, I said, okay, I'm going to go to this place in Malibu, make sure it's a nice place. Cost me a fortune, but I didn't give a shit. I just wanted to get out. And I figured, you know what? This would be good for me. I didn't do it when I stopped drinking. I didn't drink. But I figured, okay, in order for me to get out, I'll take a month and I'll go and I'll do everything they tell me to do. And I'll still be by the ocean. I could take a walk by the ocean and, you know, just kind of clear my head. And I met some really nice people in there. And there's some other people I'm going like, what am I doing in here, man? Like, you know, and they're all like, I, I'm not allowed to say anything. There are some kids, you know, young people in there that I really felt for that were struggling really hard. And I met a couple of nice people that, you know, and I, and I went to all the classes and went to the meetings on the beach and I did it for a while. And, you know, I, first thing I did was call Ringo when I got out and going, dude, I really fucked up. And, you know, his, his friendship is everything to me. You know, we're, he's a very close brother to me. And, and he talked me down and said, Hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I confessed my sins and all that stuff. I mean, but I didn't fall off the wagon like other people do with something that was terribly addicting or I didn't start drinking or snort blow or do anything stupid, but I did do stupid shit with the antidepressants that I was taking, you know, and which were okayed by my now former doctor what, you know, what were the stupid things you were doing just taking too much ketamine so you were going to a psychiatrist who was prescribing ketamine well my doctor said it was okay yeah and uh, you get uh, the okay shit. well was ketamine forget when you had this bad experience was ketamine well, that was that was, was it working for you before uh, well, yeah i mean it would it would take you to another place but you're only supposed to take a little bit of it but I was going, well, what happens if you take a little bit more? And then it got darker and I was hiding it. And it was really a shameful period of time for me. And, and then it just, I did too much and went out. And that's when I have no recollection of what really what happened. Other than I woke up in a hospital going, what the fuck happened to me? And where is everybody? I want to leave here, but they wouldn't let me leave. It was scary. It was the scariest thing that ever happened to me, Bob. I'm not kidding you, man. It really put everything into perspective in my whole life. And I wanted to escape so bad. I didn't want to feel anything. I didn't want to deal with anything. And this, you know, a little bit's okay. Lasts for a half hour and then whatever. But I just, once I realized it made me feel better, I just kept taking it. It's not illegal. It's not addicting. But It'll fuck you up if you do too much of it, like anything else. So, did you? What'd you learn in rehab, if anything? 
how lucky I really am and how much my family meant to me and how much my career meant to me and how I almost lost it all because of feeling sorry for myself like everybody else in the world wasn't fucked over and like I was the only one. I mean, that was an incredibly selfish move on my part. Um, and I realized that I almost ruined everything. And I started from ground zero again. I was broken down to the, the nub. And I was very active in all the, you know, I got a lot out of it. You know, I put, you know, you get a, as much as you put into it. You know what I mean? But it was the scariest thing that ever happened to me. And I'm not proud of it. I mean, I don't really talk about it. I mean, you know, now everybody's going to know about it and all that shit, but whatever. I don't care. I mean, I'm, I made some mistakes in my life, but I'm not the only one. It was really surprising that at my age, I would have let myself do that again. But I had, I kept going, are we coming back? Is it coming back? No, man. I don't know when it's coming back. And my depression led me down the road. And I told my doctor, this is what's up. He goes, well, that's interesting. He goes, that might work for you. Well, once you get a green light from a doctor <laughs> to a guy like me, forget about it. So the first thing I did was abuse it like a drunk or an addict would, you know? So I just changed poison. So I fucked myself up. But I, but I still, you know, w w the thing about AA, I mean, I would go every day if I needed it, but, you know, and I, and I went for a while, but uh, I have a, the guy that I met in there who's now my psychiatrist, he's an addiction expert, is now my sponsor as well in the sense of I talk to him three times a week and sometimes more, sometimes a little less. But, I mean, he's helped me through this and he knows everything that I'm doing, everything. And I'm getting a lot of stuff off my shoulder that I didn't want to say in front of a group of people that know me. Yeah, there's nothing anonymous about Alcoholics Anonymous. Especially if you live in Hollywood, you know? I mean, there'll be guys that arm wrestle me on that. Hey, it stays in the brotherhood and all that. But once you say something that you wish nobody ever knew in your whole life and everybody knows about it, even if they swear not to tell, they still know when they look at you. And there's some things that I just didn't want anybody to know about. Not you, not anybody. So the 30 days are up. What happens after they let you out? I went home and started my life over again. Well, that's got to be hard after being, you know, in a controlled environment for 30 days, suddenly be alone. Yeah, it was a little weird, but my older kids came to my rescue and they fixed up the house for me and kind of, you know, they were really supportive. You know, all my kids were, you know, my youngest son's autistic, so he didn't understand why he just figured I went on the road, and, you know, but uh, you know, the rest of my kids were very supportive of me, particularly my older children. They really came to my rescue and cleaned out all the people that were around that shouldn't be around anymore and and uh it was a, like it was an incredibly painful thing for me to realize how badly i fucked up and i almost died and i let everybody down i humiliated myself now where do i go so i own it you know i mean i mean that's part of the program i mean is to own your sins so it's a, it's it's humiliating to talk about but you know what man Maybe it'll help somebody go, wow, you know? How long ago did this all happen? A few years ago, a couple of years ago. Actually, if you want to get exact about it, because all the AA guys like to get exact, August 25th, two years ago. So when it comes up this August, uh, it'll be two years since the disaster. So how long did it take you to normalize, to feel back on your feet, to feel like you were... Oh, I you know, felt I felt normal. I mean, there were, like I said, it's, there, there's no come down. I wasn't. There's not a, a, an addictive drugs. There was. 
I, I didn't have any physical well, problems. I'm not talking about coming down from drugs. I've had my own experience here. And you're in the environment, then you go home and look at the all the four walls. I was really happy to be there with my dog and my, you know, everybody. Every, I, I mean, I, I, you know, my kids forgave me. They understood that I went left field, you know. It hurt them to watch their old man like that. I scared my youngest daughter. I was just, she was like, what the fuck is wrong with dad, you know? Because I was just spaced out and I didn't realize what it looked like to look at me. You know what I mean? When you're inside of yourself, you think, I'm, I'm cool. Nobody's, everything's all right. But I wasn't. I was fucking dying inside. And this little band-aid that I would put on with this fucking shit blinded me to the reality of my situation. And um, it's my fault. I can't point the finger at anybody. I mean, it's my fault. And that's the end of it, you know? And, and I made a mistake and I fixed it. And I still believe, I believe in the AA program. I think it's a fantastic thing. Everybody needs a different version of it. You know what I mean? There's a, you know, a hundred different kinds of AA meetings in Los Angeles and different people and their own little cliques and stuff. I just prefer to get my treatment privately and it's worked for me very, very well. And I've gotten a lot of stuff out that's made me a much better person. The hardest part is forgiving myself. Some people are going to hear this and go, ah, I knew that motherfucker, man. Look at that loser. Ah, I knew, you know, they're going to get off on hearing this, you know, and because they don't like me for whatever reason, or they just get off on other people's pain. Uh, having any fame whatsoever, even at a low level, like myself, you know, people, you know, like they like to take you down. That's why I got off all social media. I don't look, I don't look, read the comments anymore. I don't do that because it was like cutting myself. There's always somebody who's going to, you know, I don't need to read I'm great. I don't need to read I suck. I don't need that. I try to do what I, be the best me I can be. Try to forgive myself, be a better father, be a better friend. Maybe someday I'll, I'll meet a girl that uh, makes sense for me. But, you know, at this point, I'm better off alone. You know, I'm working a lot. Work and my, and my family is all I care about at this point, you know. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. So you talked about when you were married to your second wife, stopping drinking and having this anger. Is the anger now taken care of? As much as it can be. My, I come from a long line of angry men. My grandfather, my father. And it lessens every generation. My son, Trev, <laughs> he, he's, not, he's not angry. He's, you know, he can get angry. And sometimes I go, oh, I see that guy. I know where that comes from. But they all my ch- my older children make do impressions of me, Matt, which kind of makes me laugh. I go, come on, I don't really look like that. I go, oh yes, you do. <laughs> Nothing, you know. My kids are, you know, going to be thirty six and thirty eight next month. They're both May babies, or this month. So I mean, you know, they've seen the whole ride, and I'm very tight with them. You know, my own my oldest daughter went through a, her own alcohol issue, which she's been clean for a long time now. But you know, it's you don't go into this trying to be an asshole. You know what I mean? It always starts out as fun, and some people can stay in that zone. The normal people have a couple drinks, smoke a joint, whatever. You know, I mean, I, mean, I don't even count weed. I mean, that's a whole other thing. But you know, when you start playing around with drugs that alter your mind or booze that alters your everything, it never ends well if you overdo it. You know. So, you have four kids. Two are still in the home. Two are out. Are the two are out? Do you support them at all? Or are they off the payroll? Oh, they're off the payroll. I support them wholeheartedly as a father, but I don't. I'm not writing any checks to anybody. My my. Then both of my children married really well. Wonderful people. My oldest daughter's husband is a saint, Tony. He he's a beautiful guy. They're trying to have a baby right now, which is great because I want grandpa something i want on the list you know most of my friends have grandkids i'm like i want one of those come on <laughs> and my uh my oldest son just got married um he married uh jonathan kane's daughter from journey who is a wonderful cat you know what i mean you know, I, I don't get into anybody's drama that's their own i've lived through my own i'm like when we did the tour with these guys it's like i love you both i please don't you know, don't i want to be involved i I've been through this. I don't know. I don't want to be in it anymore. So we had a great time. It was great. But she's a wonderful daughter-in-law. She's fantastic, beautiful, smart, funny. And they live in a beautiful pad. You know, they're my kids doing producing records and writing songs for people. And he's done very well in a, in a time when it's almost impossible to do well in the music business as a young artist coming up, you know. So how'd you meet Ringo? Oh, God, do I love that guy. He's been such a great friend to me. I mean, what an honor to even say that out loud. I met him because I knew he had the the All Stars, right? And it was I go, I want, I want to be in that band more. I think I'm the right guy for this band. I think I could do. And and my dear friend Greg Bissonette who plays double drums with Ringo. He recommended me, and he brought Dave Hart, who's the agent and producer of the shows. He finds the guys. Ringo used to change out the band every year and a half, you know. So it was coming time to change the band. They were looking for new players, and I and I 
and Greg brought him to a show we were doing, Toto was doing in Paris. And so he saw the show and saw me and it was sold out arena. We did great. And he's like, yeah, that guy's okay. So he, he ran in Ringo's the bottom line. It's always up to him, you know, who he wants in the band or who, what music he wants to play or whatever. And the only thing I did was call up my buddy, Jim Keltner and go, Keltner, put in a good word for me, man. I really want to do this gig because him and Ringo are tight. And obviously there were a lot of people that have been in the band were friends of mine or are still friends of mine. Why'd you want to do it so badly? Because it's Ringo, man. And I thought I thought it'd be a great asset to the band. I mean, I had gotten a chance to work with Paul McCartney on the first time for was it during the Thriller record with Michael Jackson, and then we did the film. He hired me and Jeff Picard to go do the film in London, so we got to hang out with him, George Martin, and Jeff Emmerich for two weeks, which was awesome, beyond awesome. And I met Dave Gilmore when I was there because he wanted Jeff to play. And so I mean, getting to meet all my heroes was pretty cool. And then I didn't see Paul for a while. And then I met George in a club, George Harrison at, at the at right three days before, after, you know, it was the year Jeff passed away, 1992. And we were doing a, tri uh, a benefit tribute concert to him at the amphitheater. And everybody came out to this. Eddie Van Halen joined up. Donald Fagan came out. This is before Steely got back together again. And uh, I, uh, Boz came out. Michael McDonald was there. Uh, James Newton Howard was there. All the guys that have played in, in the band, you know, Lenny Castro. Um, all of our brothers came out and played. And then I met George a couple of days before. Just wanted to say hi. You're the reason why I play. I was, I was humble. I, and, I, and, I, I'll, I, and he said, no, sit down, stay for a while. Did and he know who a, you were? Yeah, surprisingly enough. Um, you know, because I'd, I at that point, you know, it was 1992. I, you know, he 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 had heard my name through mutual friends, but we never met. And I said, hey, I I'd worked with Paul. And he says, oh yeah yeah yeah. He goes, and I just started making him laugh because a lot of people will say, I love the solo you played on Taxman. It wasn't him. It was Paul. You know, I knew <laughs> the I knew the right songs, and I knew I said, hey man, you're the reason why I play the guitar. I just wanted to say, I love you and thank you very much. I'm gonna leave you alone. You know. He said, no, sit down for a minute. So we started, I was drinking still then. So I was my happy, jovial self at that point. I think I amused him to a certain degree. And we had a little few laughs. And, and I, was, I was leaving. I said, you know, we're doing this benefit from our, you know, I told him about losing Jeff and stuff. And obviously he knew something about loss at that point. Uh, losing a band member brother, you know, I mean, he's, to relate to that you don't have to be famous to relate to that it was a brotherhood that you once you join a band you just have you either understand or you don't anyway i said we're playing You're like why don't you come by and sh you know come by and, and hang i go the last song we're doing is little help of my friends and he laughed he goes so maybe i maybe i'll show up and i said i'll leave a couple tickets for you just in case but i know you're not gonna come so we end, we end up there and we're rehearsing david crosby was there i mean like i said i'm forgetting people that i and we're rehearsing the end bit and all of a sudden somebody goes hey somebody's here to see you. i said not now man i'm like you know i'm trying to figure i'm sitting at the piano we're all sitting around throwing the parts around he goes no this guy's from liverpool i go you're shitting me i turn around and there's george at the amphitheater the old amphitheater and sitting there smiling at me he goes he goes you didn't think i was going to show up did you and I said, <laughs> no i didn't and i go do you want to play on this and, and he goes, and he goes, yeah. He goes, what? I said, a little help, with my friends. And all of a sudden, I realized we're doing the Joe Cocker version. 
you know <laughs> so, so we start playing around and he's got my old les paul in his, in his in his hands playing it and he goes well that's not the way me and the lads do. i said i know i said i know i know this is terrible and but he was great and he came out and played you know there, there's photos of me him and eddie van halen i mean george he took a little bit of a shine to me and we started hanging out every time he'd come into la he would we'd come on have dinner and stuff you know and he i'd see him all the time uh i've got lots of george stories but that would take a whole other hour but long story short i stayed in touch with him and then when that idiot stabbed him at his house right he lost touch with everybody i'd hear like a Kelton would say, yeah, George said to say hi to you. He's, you know, he's just hiding out at the house, man. You know, like, and I'm like, hey, I understand, you know. Okay, edit. We lose George. I mean, it's tra- I mean, I was crushed, you know. And um, the whole Ringo thing started coming up. And that started became like, I really want to do this gig. You know, I really want to meet Ringo and I want him to like me and I want to do this gig. And I want to do my friend Richard Page and all these great artists that were playing with him at the time put a good word in for me. And then Keltner put a good, when I finally talked to him, he goes, he goes, you had everybody in the world calling me, telling you to hire you. you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm doing a terrible impression. Um, and the first, and I got the gig, but I wasn't allowed to talk about it for like three or four months. I couldn't tell anybody because the other band was ending and didn't want it to get out that, uh, you know, there was going to be changes made. So I had to sit on that. And when I found out it was all going, I mean, I was so excited, thrilled to be in the band, you know? And I figured, wow, this is, I told the guys, Ben, look, I really want to do this, man. Give me a couple of months off so I can do this. And at the time, Todd Rundgren was in the band, you know? And uh, Greg Raleigh from Santana, Journey, in which we did all the Santana stuff. Anyway, I thought, you know what? I, I could, as a studio player, I could play everybody else's stuff just the way they want it to be played. So I figured I'd be a good asset to the band. And, you know, I remember the getting off the elevator in, in Canada for the rehearsals, you know, and he was standing there. And I just looked at him. It's like, he's such a warm human being. Give me a hug. He says, all right, see you in the morning. And I've been there for 11 years and we've become great friends. And that's a great honor. He's changed my life for the better. And he's, he's, a, he's been like the big brother I never had, you know, just always wise and positive and hilarious and it's a joy to be around and make music with him and see this guy who's gonna be 84 in july every time i call him he's on the treadmill (laughs) it's like your facetime on the treadmill what you're always bothering me on the FaceTime. he's never he never stops he's working on three eps at the same time getting ready to go on the road now we're you know we leave in three weeks we start rehearsals and it's a thrill and i told him he's gonna have to kill me to get rid of me man and he laughs about it and then i have no idea why i've lasted this long i mean we just have a great relationship man you know i'm, I'm it's it's one of the most important things that ever happened to me in my life i love the man i would do anything his family unbelievably great people his wife barbara's fantastic all the people, the kids, and all the people I met through him, world-class human beings, man. It's made me a better person, 100%. And that's why I felt shitty when I blew it. I had to call him and say, look, man, I really fucked up. Because he didn't see it. I mean, I, I wouldn't show that side. It was like a secret, dark spot that I would go to. 
that very few people saw. And I fucked up my relationship with it. I fucked up everything with it. I mean, I really lost my mind, literally. And now that I've got it back and everybody's all's forgiven, I made amends with the people that I needed to do that with. And the people that I have lost touch with for one reason or another, there's a reason for that. But for the most part, I mean, I'm more calm and happy and content and appreciative and more spiritual, closer to God, closer to everything, realizing that I'm closer to the dirt nap than I am the beginning, you know? So I better savor these moments and make the most out of it, be healthy and be present, be there for my kids. You know, I had to make all the, especially to my, to my youngest daughter, I scared her. And for that, I'm, you know, it's taken a long time. You know, she, everything's cool now. We're closer than ever, but you know, it was a bad time, man. And, and I'm back and I feel great. And I wanted to make new music. I want to go on the road. That was a huge success for us last two years in the United States. Cause that's always been an Achilles deal. We do great around the world, but getting the U S back, you know, that was important to me before I die. And that's happening right now in terms of touring, what our value is, and finally getting a little respect, as they say. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember Henley telling me in 1980 when we were working on his first record. Oh, there's a shameless name drop. Um, I go, what is? Why do these guys hate us so much, man? And I was sitting around the table. We were still like, yeah, post session hang. And Don goes, he goes, look, man. He goes, they didn't like us either when we started out. He goes, if you. You hang in there and you work hard and you don't go away. You don't, they don't win and they'll eventually come around, which is a, a great piece of advice that I kind of like at the time was like, okay, right. Yeah, okay. I'll wait around for another 30 years. I've waited 40 years for it. <laughs> <laughs> and Don's a great cat. I love him to death. One of my favorite singers of all time. But, you know, there's a, through the years, I've worked with people that, you know, I've stayed friendly with over the years. You know, we don't hang out all the time or nothing, but I get an email now and then, what's up, man? How you doing? And I see, you know, and Ringo's brother-in-law is Joe Walsh, one of my all-time heroes. And I see him every once in a while. And we work together and over the years, played together. One of, uh, you know, so I've got the chance to work with a lot of my heroes, which, and, and that's how I pinch myself moments, you know? And then you, I'm losing a lot of my friends too, which is like also very humbling realizing i better take care of myself you know i'm not i'm the guy that if i stub my toe i go to the doctor you know what i mean i'm not waiting around. i got a cyst in my eye it's you know it's just a tear duct thing but you know oh at one point i during this last tour i, I felt my my right breast i'm going well there's something in here man oh this is gonna be it for me right so i go to the doctor i find out it's nothing you know but i'm already you know throwing dirt on myself in the, in the, <laughs> in the hole you know what i mean i'm very paranoid about that you know i used up my nine lives a long time ago you know what i mean and you once told me that ringo said you were his last best friend he wrote that down once uh, and he wrote it on something for me which i was very touched by you know um you know he says a lot of things like that I, i'd like to see you how know, i'm gonna tell you that we are close buddies man i, I adore the man but I, I you know ask him he certainly seems to treat me really treats me like like a real friend man i cherish one of the most important friendships i've ever had i love the man to death i would do anything for him you know so you're the longest standing member of the band right uh greg bissonette's a little longer than me but as far as being a frontline guy yeah i think so i don't know i never really looked at it but that's the rumor 
So you'll do it forever. Well, it keeps me on the road a lot. You know, like I just finished three months with Toto without coming home. And then we go out. But see, working with him is not work. It's it's a vacation for me because eh? it's it's a fun environment where I don't have I can just be the guitar player. Like I don't have to run the band and take care of everything or nobody yells at me if something screws up or something like that. You know what I mean? I, I can just it's 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 a wonderful group of guys, you know. I love everybody in the band. And it so I make it work. You know, it's where I where I'm able to book around them, they book around me. It just means I'm away a lot. But I mean, I'm not gonna ever say no to Ringo unless he wants to get rid of me. I mean that then that would be up to him. But we'd still stay friends. But I think he's at the age now, and I'm I shouldn't speak for him, but I mean he likes to be around certain people that he's comfortable with. Like meeting like a new bunch of guys. I don't think he really feels like doing that at this point. And do you like being, you know, Paige retired from the road. Do you like being on the road or it's something yeah. you have to do for the money or you, you no, just no, want to play? I What's the experience? I don't have to do any of that. I, I was born for this life, man. You know, I really, you know, some people hate the road. Um, and I can understand that. But I need to do this. I mean, once you join the circus, you can never leave and all that these cliches and all that for me it's like that i still man when the house lights go and the crowd goes i mean i forget about everything in my world for those two hours or whatever it is and that's more than money that's why i started playing in the first place before there was money or anything um but the music to care about when i was just a kid i never lost that feeling Sure, you get tired. I mean, there is the you know harsh reality of the physicality of it. But man, now, man, I, I'm if, if we're doing it by bus, I'm I'm asleep. I do the gig, eat some food, crawl in my bunk with my Kindle, and I read. I read spiritual stuff. I read UFO stuff, science fiction stuff. You know, anything not music. You know, and I go to sleep early, and I wake up early, and I feel good. I eat right. I try to keep it together. You know, make up for the times that I did. And you're going on the road because you have to. But if you oh, sat at home, or no, there no, 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 wait, 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 wait. When I say I have to, no, I'm talking about emotionally. I'm yeah, not talking about financially for your identity. Yeah, I mean, the you the have to go great, and you have to but, play. But I'm a musician. What am I supposed? To, what am I going to retire and do? Go back to being in pandemic mode? No, I don't think that's a good idea. No, but I was going to ask this one question. Assuming you did stay home, do you have enough income streams from all, you know, the songs you wrote, the record royalties, so that you can make it without going on the road? I could. I mean, I got really smart about all that stuff. You know, I got ripped off and I pissed away money. I've been divorced twice. I know what it's like to have money, lose it, and have to go over again. Now, I'm not going to do that again. Now, I, I, I save money. I save for my kids. When I die, they're going to be real happy. Uh, a couple of days after they realize dad's dead, they go, "Oh wow!" <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I mean, I I save money, man. I, I I live in a nice little house in the hills. I got one nice car. I don't have diamond rings or spend. You know, I I don't worry about money. I spend it if I want to, but I'm not stupid with it either because I've had it, lost it, and had to make it back again. And when you get to be a certain age, you don't want to have to make it back again. 
And then is there anybody who's on a list of people you haven't met or haven't played with that is still out there? Well, I, uh, Peter Gabriel, but I met him, but he doesn't need me. He's got David, this guitar player, David's awesome. David Rhodes, great guitar player. But I mean, there are people that are, I, you know, Phil Collins, I was a big Genesis fan when I was young, the, you know, the original band. I loved all their incarnations, but you know, great musicians, great songs. Uh, I, um, you know, I, I had a thing about being in Steely Dan. And for five minutes after the Boz tour in 77, Irving asked me if I would do that. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Jeff was going to do it. And we were going to put starting Toto off. We had already had done demos for Toto to get a record deal. And Sony came to us and offered us the deal. Columbia at the time, without even seeing the band live. We weren't even a live band yet. We were just, you know, it was Dave and Jeff coming off of Silk Degrees and all that. And obviously, Jeff, Jeff was in Steely Dan when we were in high school. Like, we heard the KD Light album before it was out. We heard the rhythm tracks. Jeff would come by and play us a cassette of the, what they were doing. And we were just doing all Steely Dan stuff anyway. Me and Landau. Landau was Denny Diaz. I was Jeff Baxter. That was the, that was the, the running wink joke that we had in high school. And after the boss thing happened, and I met Irving, who was incredibly nice to me as a kid. And the, it was what a management team. It was Irving was the manager, Craig Fruin was the tour manager, and Howard Coffin was the accountant. And I was 19 years old, and these guys all took a little shine to me. And Irving, you know, I'd heard, you know, he came and said, do you want to go out with Steely Dan? I'm like, does Flipper have a blowhole? Yes. <laughs> you know? Um, but I didn't realize that Dolan and Walter had come down to rehearsal and kind of checked me out in the dark, you know? And, and then I got to rehearse with Denny Diaz, the original guitar player, the right. guy I played the solo on, you know, do it again and your gold teeth and asia and all you know danny's a beautiful cat great player real unique and lovely guy him and his wife are great anyway long story short without even meeting donald or walter at that time i started getting together with denny diaz and going over who's going to play what part and then it all fell apart for whatever reason that i wasn't privy to and so I, I could say I was in Steely Dan for five seconds, but I never got to record with him. <laughs> I, I did get to play with Donald at the Jeff tribute. So that kind of fulfilled the fantasy, I think. And I worked with Walter at a, at a guitar thing once. We played together on stage. He was very nice. They were both really, really nice to me. But, uh, you know, that music is really important to me. That Steely Dan is an incredibly important band to me, you know, musically. I mean, Donald Fagan's Nightfly album, is a desert island album for me you know one of the greatest albums ever made should have beat us in the grammys it was a better record but um we were all fans of it you know and stands the test of time you know their music is just it's like it's like there's the beatles and steely those and hendrix and stuff and you know that music stuck with me my whole life you know i can go well what about zeppelin what about becco what about you know you know cream and all that yeah of course they're all there but in terms of songwriting, production, Steely Dan, man, the Beatles, Steely Dan, really, that's in my DNA hard. So since you knew and still know three members of the Beatles, what'd you learn about the magic of the Beatles? Why did it become so big? Why were they so great? Wow, man. I, 
just great songs. They're the real thing. They what they brought the there it was the combination of the four of them. I mean, it's magic. It, it, it's an elixir that comes along once in a lifetime. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if there's ever there's I don't think there's going to be another Beatles again. Do you? Well, we've been waiting, and there hasn't been one for sixty years, so I don't think so. You know, I think everything they put out still goes number one. <laughs> right, you know right. What I mean, I mean, it's I mean, I look. I say the Beatles are our classical music. You know, and the fact that I have a little teeny piece of sand history with them. You know, working, having the honor of great honor, of working with all three of them at one point or another, um, was beyond my wildest dreams. The one where it really hit me was when I was invited to do the Beatles' fiftieth anniversary of the Ed Sullivan Show. Right, and now we were, and you know, it was an all-star backing band. Me and Peter Frampton on guitar, and you know, I could go on. Don was was the musical director, and there was all these great players, the you know, all the A-list guys. And we got to back all these people that apparently CBS television chose to be artists to sing Beatles songs. And to make a long story short, I was honored to be there, to say the least. And then right before we were going, it was a busy week. We were rehearsals, and then we had the Grammys with Ringo to be on that show. And then the, this whole thing, and Paul was there. It was a nice reunion to see him again. And we were playing, and right before we went on, I see Paul and Ringo in the flesh right here, and then I see the guys, and then I look up at the screen, and they're playing Hard Day's Night, black and white, in which my grandmother took me to see 10 times, if not 20, when I was a kid. Bought me Beetle Boots and the whole thing. It hit me that, like, that little shitty, you know, that little kid with a shit-eating grin is now standing here 50 years later <laughs> celebrating this thing with the real guys, and I went... It was at that moment in my life I said, I really fucking pulled off the dream. I really pulled this off. I'm, I'm here. I mean, I'm, what am I doing standing here? This is incredible. I, could, I pinched myself. I, like, I got a little verklempt, man. I was a little tear in my eye, you know? I'm like, like I, this is amazing. And I kept, it was a personal moment that I not really shared. You know, I'm telling you this story. A couple people in my family know how I felt about it. But Ringo did that for me, man. Ringo such a friend. I mean, he would... Dragged me along to be a part of this thing, you know? I didn't even ask him. I just said, man, I'd love to be a part of that. And to, to have been there, to be a part, see the 50 years of my life flash before my eyes, it was a, it was a moment. I'll never, and it just made me really, really appreciate all of it that much more. And finally, are you ever Steve or were you always Luke? Well, I started out as Stephen, which is what my mother called me, with a V. She was the only person they called My grandmother. My mom and my grandmother called me Stephen. But uh, I was Steve. Uh, Luke happened because I started hanging around with a lot of guys named Steve. <laughs> I think it really got solidified in high school when Steve Picaro was the leader of Still Life, which was the band that we were, which is the second generation of the band that Jeff Picaro and David Page had in high school. When they went off to be pros, Steve took over the band, called it Still Life. And with Steve, it's every time somebody said Steve, both of us would answer. It's like, no, you're Luke. You're Luke, okay? Okay. And, it, and I've been that ever since high school. And do your ex-wives, girlfriends call you Luke, or do they call you Steve? Nope, not one of them. I said, no, nah, it doesn't sound right coming out of you. Any, any wives, they don't call me Steve. 
they might refer to me in third person as like, oh yeah, well, Luke, you know, he's not here right now. Just knowing that that may be how somebody knows me. But, you know, I, it's, it's almost like I don't even hardly answer to Steve anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm either dad or Luke. And, you know, Steve is just something that's, uh, oh, all right, I have to fill out this passport work permit or something, you know? Okay, Luke, this has been amazing. I, I can't thank you enough for being so open and honest in a world that's so guarded. And you are definitely that genuine person. I know over 20 years of knowing you and you're someone who stays connected and it sounds like you're in a really good place now. I am, man. You know, I went through the darkness, man. Everybody's life has darkness and some people don't want to talk about it. You know, I mean, I'm lucky I pulled myself out of the mud, man. Thanks for having me. I feel great. Life is, I'm really positive right now. Really super positive place. I have nothing I can say that can top that. That's what life is really about. That, as you say, feeling good about yourself and family. So thanks for doing this, Luke. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R.